Open your Bibles to the book of Romans in the New Testament. (laughs) We're going to call our series, When in Romans, Do as the Righteous Do. In our study tonight, let's get ready to Romans. Get it? It's been said that no other single book of the Bible is so responsible for transforming the lives of men than Paul's letter to the Romans. We really can't know if that's true, but we can say that Romans has been responsible for transforming the lives of certain men God used mightily through the centuries. In September 386 A.D., a native of North Africa who had been a professor for several years in Milan, Italy, sat weeping in the garden of a friend, contemplating the wickedness of his life. While sitting there, an open scroll of the book of Romans lay beside him and he picked it up. The first passage that caught his eye read, Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The man later wrote of that occasion, No further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, or securely infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That man was Aurelius Augustine, who, upon reading that short passage from Romans, received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and went on to become one of the church's outstanding theologians and leaders. Just over a thousand years later, Martin Luther, a monk in the Roman Catholic order named after Augustine, was teaching the book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. As he carefully studied the text, a transformation took place. He wrote... Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors to paradise. Thus began the Protestant Reformation. Several centuries later on May 24, 1738, a discouraged missionary went to a religious meeting in London There a miracle took place. About a quarter before nine, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The missionary was John Wesley. The message he heard that evening was the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Just a few months before, John Wesley had written in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? That evening in Aldersgate Street, his question was answered. The result was the great Wesleyan revival that swept England and transformed the nation. Ask anyone what the theme of Romans is, and they will likely go to verse 17 of chapter 1. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but let's look at that quickly. Verse 17 reads, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In Romans, the righteousness of God is revealed. What did Paul mean by that? Well, he meant the means by which God can declare sinful men saved and still maintain his perfect holiness, not violating his character in any way. It is revealed in this book as in no other Though it is by no means a new idea, it is the only way God has ever saved. Paul will establish that God's holiness demands sin be punished by death 
eternal death, separation from God. But then he will explain how God in his love for us provided a substitute to take our place. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. The demands of a holy God have been met. The penalty for the sins of the world has been paid in full. And as a result of who Jesus was and what he did on the cross, God can save any and all who avail themselves of the work of Jesus on their behalf. We read in this verse, this is activated from faith to faith, meaning by faith from first to last, faith from beginning to end. We do not, we cannot work to earn or deserve it. We receive it by faith and we continue in it by faith. Those who by faith receive this gift are declared righteous and free from guilt or punishment from God. The Bible uses a legal term, justified, to describe this transaction. God sees you just as if you'd never sinned, just as if you had died at Calvary along with Jesus. The just shall live by faith could therefore be rendered the justified by faith ones shall live. I, li- I kind of like that. The justified by faith ones shall live. So when we are justified by faith uh, in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. If you look through rose-tinted glasses, everything appears in rose color. The moment you receive Jesus by faith, God looks at you through His beloved Son and sees you in the white holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just before we begin, I'd like to give you one more quote, this one by H.A. Ironside. Ironside wrote and he said, In Romans we have the gospel taught to saints rather than the gospel preached to unsaved sinners. It is very important to see this. In order to be saved, it is only necessary to trust in Christ. But in order to understand our salvation and thus to get out of it the joy and blessing God intends, we need to have the work of Christ unfolded to us. This is what the Holy Spirit has done in this precious epistle. It is written to people who are already saved to show them the secure foundation upon which their salvation rests, namely the righteousness of God. When faith apprehends this, doubts and fears are gone and the soul enters into a settled peace. What Ironside said makes sense. In verse 15 of chapter 1, we're going to read, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Who was in Rome? Well, in verse 7, Paul said, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. And so Paul is not so much preaching the gospel to saints, but explaining the gospel to saints and letting us know what we believe. Paul was indeed writing to saints to unfold the glorious truths of the gospel they had believed to help them and to help us make progress in our walk by understanding who it is and what it is we believe. It's kind of interesting to me. I don't think about it too often, but uh, most, a lot of us got saved later in life. Not all of us. Some of you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home or you were saved at a young age despite the fact that you weren't in a Christian home. But a lot of us got saved later. And you know, the, the truth is, you get saved and you know very little about what you believe as a Christian because there's a, a definite you know, body of truth, there's a definite truth that, that we all believe. And that's what's so exciting about reading the Bible. You know, I can still remember, it still happens to me, obviously, but it happens to all of us where you think, oh, we believe that. 
I didn't. I never realized this. How many times are you thinking, oh, I, I didn't know that that's what we believed as Christians? Because I had never really encountered that in the scripture before. And so you meet the person, Jesus Christ, and you, you, you really understand very little. I'm, uh, that's not a put down. It's, it's not to, to make it. I mean, you just don't. You, 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 you know that you're a sinner and you need salvation and, and that Jesus is the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. And then you begin a lifetime of figuring out what it is you actually believe, what the gospel consists of in a fuller, greater way. And that's what the book of Romans is really all about. It's a great uh, doctrinal treatise of Paul's on what the doctrine of the uh, gospel really is. To process as we read and study the Bible. And Romans is one of those books that, more dramatically than others, reveals what you believe as a Christian. And so in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul the apostle, the spiritual hero of the book of Acts, was the author of Romans. He made three missionary journeys through much of the Mediterranean world. After returning to Jerusalem, bringing an offering for the needy church, he was falsely accused by the Jews, savagely beaten by an angry mob, arrested by the Romans. Two Roman governors, Felix and Festus, as well as King Agrippa, did not find him guilty of anything, but pressure from the Jews who hated him kept him in custody. After two years, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his uh, case to Caesar. After a harrowing trip that included a two-week storm at sea and a magnificent shipwreck described in the book of Acts, Paul reached Rome. After being released for a brief time, he was rearrested and finally suffered martyrdom around 65 to 67 A.D. Paul wrote Romans from Corinth towards the end of his third missionary journey, around 56 A.D., just before he left for Jerusalem with the offering for the saints there. And so that's a little overview of Paul, his ministry, and how this book fits into that timetable. He describes himself here as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament bondservant, as I understand it, was a slave who, though set free under Jewish law, voluntarily chose to remain his master's property for life. Uh, he would be taken to the priest, who would then pierce his ear with a sharp instrument called an awl, marking him as a bondservant for life. There's a lot of arguing today among Christians about things like body piercing and tattoos. I don't have time for that. None of that matters. What matters is that you bear in your body the marks of the crucifixion, not physically bearing them, but spiritually bearing them by being Christ-like. Uh, you know, what do we really care really what a person looks like on the outside uh, so long as they bear in their body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ and are serving Him? Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, if you want to make a case for body piercings, uh, they pierced bond slaves in the Old Testament. Uh, there's all kinds of, you know, and the only reason I say this is because you know, if you start searching on the Internet or you talk to people who are really conservative, you know, they have all these scriptures about how you're defiling your body and stuff like that. Well, you, we've got at least that one, you know, that bond slaves pierced themselves for life. And uh, it was a good thing the priest actually did it. And so, uh, so piercings, I guess, are okay. Ear piercings, uh, if you want to be really just, you know, legalistic about it. Paul was called to be an apostle. Apostle has at least two meetings. 
In the first century, there were men who held the office of an apostle. These were men who had, been, uh, who had seen the risen Lord and who had been specially commissioned by him to establish the foundation of his church on earth. In the opening chapter of the book of Acts, um, they choose uh, a, a man to replace Judas uh, and uh, Peter and the boys there, when they're talking about that, they give some of the qualifications of what they understood an apostle to be. And it was somebody who had seen the risen Christ. And so this discounts the possibility of anybody being an apostle today. There are no apostles in the first century sense of the word apostle. Men who you later read about in the book of Ephesians who laid the foundation for the church. Now today we talk about certain men who seem to have an apostolic type ministry. They are used by God to establish many churches and all, but they're not laying the foundation for the church. They're not establishing by their teaching and and, and all what the church is all about. And so we don't believe that there's an apostolic succession by the laying on of hands or in any other way. Uh, There are no apostles in the New Testament first century sense. But apostle also means a sent one or a missionary, and it could be applied to anyone so serving. Uh, We just don't do that because we don't want to uh, be confused. Now, while the first century apostles were missionaries, missionaries are no longer apostles. So just keep that in mind. Paul, it says, was separated to the gospel of God. His life was set apart to preach the gospel. We know that before his conversion, we read in Galatians 1.15 that God had separated him from the womb to preach the gospel. Now, he wasn't saved in the womb, but God saw him on the road to Damascus years later receiving Christ. And uh, in that sense, he could say he had separated him from the womb. At his conversion on the road to Damascus, you read in Acts 9.15 that Jesus separated him to the ministry of preaching the gospel. And then after his conversion, you read in Acts 13.2 that God the Holy Spirit separated Paul to preach the gospel. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all at work in the life of this man, Paul, before he was even born, uh, which is kind of mind-boggling. Now, while you may not think your life is as important or as dramatic as Paul's, you too need to be certain of your calling. God has before ordained good works for all of us to discover, just as he did for Paul. He has separated you unto the gospel, and we are to discover our own calling. Uh, You know, anytime I get really frustrated, you know, that God's not using me enough or, you know, things like that, or I'm not as significant as the Apostle Paul. I go to those passages where I find out that I'm not being stoned to death like the Apostle Paul. I'm not being shipwrecked like the Apostle Paul. I'm not being thrown in a dungeon in the stocks like the Apostle Paul, wondering if I would sing at midnight like the Apostle Paul or, you know, whatever, you know, be sad that I didn't have my iPhone, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, uh, you know, all of us have a calling. It's up to God how he wants to use us. Uh, just look at your situation and, and say, this is a high calling, serving the Lord. Uh, you know, what am I? People say, well, what is my calling? Well, what are you? Are you a husband? Are you a father? Are you a wife? Are you a mother? Grandfather, grandmother, or, you know, in the church, what are you? How has God gifted you? Then just be faithful to those callings. 
Because in the end, it's my understanding that when we stand before the Lord, he's just going to want to talk to us about our faithfulness, not our vast ministry that spanned the globe. Uh, you know, not the, uh, it's not a numeric thing so much as it, as it is faithfulness. And if you read biographies at all of Christians, uh, some of these guys that God and gals that God uses in a really mighty way have a really mighty suffering in their life too. Now, some of us do too. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not that we get off easy, but, uh, you know, let God be God and just be faithful where he's called you and learn to be content. Being separated is pretty serious stuff. As an example, I'd point to Cortez. Soon after he and his men landed on the shores of Mexico, he ordered the burning of their boats. They were there. They were going to make it work or they were going to die there. Now, I don't really care for Cortez's tactics there in the New World, but he decided that he was separated to his mission. There was no going back for him uh, once they got there. Verse 2, he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul is going to be sensitive to those with a Jewish heritage who were struggling to put Christianity into perspective. It might seem to them that this was some new teaching that originated with Jesus or his followers. Uh, in fact, people think that all the time. Uh, the average person who knows any, a little bit even about Christianity, probably without thinking about it, or, or maybe sometimes with thinking about it, would say that Christianity was kind of invented in the first century by the followers of Jesus. That Jesus was a great prophet and teacher who people began to follow. And, and that's the birth of Christianity. Uh, and, and nothing could be farther from the truth. The gospel was nothing new. It says here it was promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was the same message that the prophets had only in fuller detail that was revealed to and through the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures. Uh, and so uh, that's something to bear in mind. Paul is going to get into uh, this whole issue of how people are saved. They're not saved any differently today than they were saved in the Garden of Eden. People have been saved the same way all throughout. They're saved by grace through faith. God justifies a man or a woman when they believe in him. And that's the way it was in the garden. That's the way it was for uh, all the patriarchs. That's the way it was for Abraham. And that's the way it is today. And so Paul says in, in sensitivity to the Jew, who later on the Jews are going to have some really serious questions about say, what, what good is it to be a Jew then if all these things are true? And he's going to say, well... Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you guys have a big advantage. You have the scriptures. You should have seen all of this. You know, the Gentiles come late to the party. Uh, and so there's a lot of privileges to being a Jew. So he's very sensitive to this issue. We are in support of Israel because God is still working with Israel. Uh, God loves Israel. They are his chosen people. He hasn't cast them aside permanently uh, and, and transferred their blessings to us. Uh, and so, uh, Paul, very sensitive to this. Now, this gospel is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So who is he? Verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is the seed, meaning he is the offspring of David and at the same time, he is the son of God. As the son of David, he was born a man to the Virgin Mary. 
as the Son of God, He is God having no origin, no beginning, and no ending. The Son of God means He is in a unique relationship to God as Himself being God. He is part of the triune Godhead. One verse speaks of His perfect humanity, the other of His perfect deity. Jesus was not a divine man or a human God. He was and is God incarnate, God and man, God in human flesh. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. This means that Jesus was empowered to live a perfect, sinless life on earth as a man. And then his resurrection from the dead proves that he defeated sin and death, nullifying its penalty for all those who would believe in him. How important is it really to believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Well, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse points out that your entire salvation depends upon being in Christ, upon God seeing you through Jesus. If Jesus is not fully God, his righteousness is not perfect and he therefore cannot satisfy the penalty for sin, and thus his death on the cross can have no meaning for you. It, can, it cannot save you. If God's righteous law is not fulfilled and, and the demands of it met and the penalty for it paid, then Jesus' death means nothing. Only God could fulfill the righteous demands of his own law. If Jesus is not fully man, his righteousness is not available to you, since he's not one of you, he's not like you, and thus God cannot save you. And so only, a, only the God-man, only God incarnate, can save lost man. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had received grace and apostleship. God saved him by grace and sent him as an apostle. He saved him and sent him for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The gospel is a command to all men everywhere to repent and believe the name of Jesus. Paul himself said in Acts 17.30 that God, quote, commands all men everywhere to repent. We aren't sure, but the believers at Rome had obeyed that command of the gospel. Paul was called to be an apostle, and the believers at Rome were the called of Jesus Christ, and they were called saints. Later on in Romans, we'll look more closely at the doctrine of election. For now, think of the word called in simple terms, uh, the way Paul was using it to emphasize that when you call someone, you are seeking them. And they either answer you or ignore you. Any parent knows this. You call to your children and you know they hear you and they ignore you. They choose to ignore you. Selective hearing. Any husband knows this. <laughs> and any wife realizes this. And so, uh, you know, and so it's just, you know, don't get tripped up over something. We'll talk about calling and election and all that later on. But Paul's just saying, hey, God sent me out into the world as an apostle with this understanding of the righteousness uh, of God that is, you, you can be justified by faith in this person, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, and he's commanded me to go everywhere preaching this and commanding people to repent and be saved, and whoever does that is saved. It's pretty simple, really. As a, a Christian, then, is someone who has responded to God's universal call to salvation. Afterwards, a disciple 
is a Christian who responds to God's unique calling to service. In each case, it's all of grace. The gospel is God's promise to justify you by faith in his son. It was a promise made before the foundation of the earth, and it will extend throughout all eternity until the creation of a new, uh, through history rather, until the creation of a new earth. It's a promise that can be verified in the scriptures and that has been validated by his son in his sinless life and especially in his resurrection from the dead. Verse 7, we close in this verse, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's first word of address, really, to these Christians at Rome is to remind them that they are the beloved of God. God loves the whole world. The Bible says that. God so loved who? The world. But he only beloves the believer because the believer is in his son. You are the beloved of God because God sees you in his son, Jesus Christ. Later on in Romans, we're going to get in chapters 6, 7, and 8 to the real heart of victory over sin and the walk of the Christian life. And Paul is going to say, here's the deal. When Jesus Christ was crucified, you were crucified with him. When he was buried, you were buried with him. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead with him. Therefore, you have power over sin and need not yield your members as members of unrighteousness, but as members of righteousness. And so, uh, you know, God sees you as his beloved. Jesus is the beloved son of God. And we are his beloved sons and daughters not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. And so when the, when the Father sees us, He sees us in His Son or through His Son. And He loves us just as much as He loves His Son, Jesus Christ. It's pretty remarkable, really. And, and the more you wrap your mind around some of these truths in the book of Romans, you start to understand how, how it transforms people's lives uh, who have, interestingly enough, you know, individuals like Luther or Wesley who are serving the Lord. Uh, you know, Wesley, I love that quote. He goes, I went to, he was certainly a Christian. I went to, the, you know, to America to convert the Indians, but who's going to convert me? And in other words, he, he struggled in his Christian life until he understood some of the truths that we're going to be uncovering in this book. And so, you know, I'm not promising that it's going to change all of our lives, but it, it certainly has changed many, many lives uh, over the years as we just simply take God at His word and say, wow, really? God did that? God loves me as much as He loves Jesus Christ? I'd beg to uh, tell you that at least half of us do not believe that. At least half of us do not believe that. I don't want to get into the psychology of it, whether it's because you had a bad childhood or, you know, you weren't held enough as a baby or didn't crawl enough or, you know, whatever those kinds of things are. And we all have terrible, you know, a lot of us have terrible baggage that we're carrying, right? None of that matters. What matters is that we understand these truths uh, and, and we get into it. And, and we, you know, and, and I think a lot, all of us, you know, who are Christians here, we would probably say, oh, yeah, you know, salvation is totally by faith. It's faith from faith to faith, from beginning to end. But the reality is we're trying to work our way into God's good graces all the time. We, we sort of think that there are some good works that we must do in order to uh, really, really be saved or stay saved. 
Uh, and uh, I only say that because we're fragile in our way of thinking and, and we, we have a hard time with these things. We have a really hard time taking God at his word and believing what he says. We want to uh, deeply analyze everything. And there's nothing wrong with that uh, except that it sometimes you know, gets us uh, really off the track of just believing things on, on a very... Uh, first of all, a simple level. I've always, you know, over the years, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy, but, you know, the, uh, the things that I've come to believe or, or that the Bible teaches, then when you study them more, you don't find out that you were totally off base because you didn't have the right perspective. You learn more about what you already know. I'm not saying we can't be wrong about anything. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. You know, there, there are things that sometimes you think, ooh, I didn't realize that. But uh, a lot of times what will happen is people say, oh, you know, here's, here's this new truth or this new perspective or this new way of understanding that that you've never really thought of before. And, and they kind of get you off track. And in reality, a lot of times you just need to know more about uh, where you started. Uh, somebody tweeted the other day, this is a famous thing that comes around about every year, but they say, you know, the, the, something to the effect of, you know, the deepest thing that I, that I could ever really know is that, you know, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's, you know, I mean, think about it. We talked earlier about how, how much did you really know when you went forward? Or, or in my case, I saw some prophetic movies that are full of, you know, things that aren't even true. Uh, you know, just kind of speculation at the time. Uh, distant thunder and you know things like that and Hal Lindsey's movie The Late Great Planet a great book but you know it's pretty sensational and then a friend of mine leads me in a prayer to receive Christ I, what do you know at that point you, you know you know you know very little you know the person who has saved you and has come to indwell you and then your life begins in earnest as you journey to figure out the depth of that but you should never you know you never really move from that, do you? That the fact that Jesus overwhelmed you with His love, that He He drew you into His presence, that He loved you so much that He died to save you, and so um, we are the beloved of God because of the grace of God in saving you. You have peace with God through Jesus. You share in the heavenly passionate fellowship that has existed throughout eternity between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And and we'll end with this. Paul says they were called. To be saints. The words to be, you'll notice, are italicized. And that always indicates that they're not in the manuscripts from which the Bible was translated into English. They're added, translators add things for a better flow of reading. But in this case, it obscures the meaning. It's not that one day, that you are called to one day be a saint. Paul is saying, no, you are called saints you are his set apart ones Uh, and to the extent that you and i grasp some of the wonderful truths in this book uh, we will be separated the way paul the apostle was Uh, you know maybe not to be shipwrecked or to be stoned to death or any of those things but maybe to be the husband and the father and the wife and the mother and the you know, the servant in our church and the worker and all that we're really supposed to be and say, you know, Lord, I am separated to this, this Christian life. I, there's, I'm not going back. I'm burning my boats. I'm burning my bridges. I'm going to, you, know, uh, you know, here I take my stand. I can go no further. 
that kind of a thing. And you just, the joy of a separated life, of, of living for the Lord with no escape route, uh, you know. And, and take marriage, for example. I probably shouldn't get into this because I always, you know, uh, hurt people's feelings and stuff. But, uh, you know, if you're a Christian, let's just start right now. Forget your past. I'm not talking about your past. You're a Christian and you're married. Hey, burn your bridge. Don't ever think about divorce. Don't get divorced. Are there biblical grounds for divorce? Sure. And that's a whole other thing. But I know too many Christians over the years, or people who profess to be Christians, somewhere in the back of their mind they think, this thing may not work out. If this thing doesn't work out, you know, there's a a Christian uh, attorney here in town, a couple went to him, they wanted him to, they're a Christian couple, they, they wanted him to do a prenuptial agreement, and he wouldn't do it. He said, you're, you're, you're saying that you're going to get a divorce. So, it's interesting. We need to burn our bridges, you know, in, in those ways. You think, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not Cortez. No, that's a good thing, by the way. But, uh, but there, if you pray about it and think about it, there are things in our lives that we can burn and, and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm, this is it. You, it's either you, you either help me with this, you fill me, you overwhelm me, you, you empower me, or this, there's, that, that's all there is to it because I've got no place else to go. Uh, there's, there's no other alternative but that this thing works out the way that you have intended it to work out. And, and this is the kind of book and this is the kind of study that can help us in that. Amen?